Well, good morning, Grace. Uh, nice to be with you this morning. I'm Rob Price. Uh, my wife Mindy and I are over at the La Mirada campus. Um, it's really nice to be with you guys. We miss you guys. Um, and at the same time, we pray for and cheer for the ministry that you're doing here in Fullerton. Um, and we also look forward to being with you tonight at the, the Lord's Supper service combined. It'll be a great treat. Uh, for a good while now, we've been preaching through Mark's gospel, and we're getting near the end. Uh, these past few weeks, we've seen ourselves in Peter's denial while Jesus gives the true confession. We've seen ourselves in the murder of Barabbas while Jesus dies in his place. The disciples have all fled. Jesus is now alone. In Mark 15 and 16, we're moving into the final climactic events of Jesus' earthly ministries, crucifixion, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Uh, And it's the same gospel sequence that the creed follows when we confess that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried the third day he rose again. So today, in the next few weeks, we're going to follow Mark as he leads us through these central events of the Christian faith. And I hope all along that as we do so, we'll see that truly this man, Jesus, is the Son of God. Now, Mark's gospel is, it's not a detective novel, you'll probably have noticed. But uh, as in a detective novel, so in Mark's gospel, the details matter. The details of all of Scripture matter. The details are there for a reason, of course, right? They're telling us something. And I think we especially want to pay attention to details in Scripture when a passage like ours this morning seems to be full of details. Our passage this morning is about the crucifixion, the crucifixion of the Son of God. This is kind of important, right? But in our passage, we actually hear less about the crucifixion itself and more about what seem like random details. Simon, Alexander, Rufus, Golgotha the wine, the garments, the hour, the inscription, the robbers. We're talking about the crucifixion for goodness sake, right? But in a passage about the crucifixion, we're told remarkably little about the crucifixion itself. We actually hear more about the details. But even this is a clue, of course, right? The details matter because they're not irrelevant. They do tell us something about the crucifixion, but indirectly. Mark tells us about the crucifixion its purpose, its power, its perfection, largely through the details. So we're going to follow Mark this morning through some of the details, not all of them. Uh, First, we're going to look up at the lead-up to the crucifixion with Simon of Cyrene, Golgotha, and the wine. Second, we're going to look at the crucifixion itself, and we'll see how Mark uses Psalm 22 and the inscription and the robbers to begin transforming his portrait of the cross. And then third, we'll see how the blindness of the mockers doubles as an invitation for us to see. In all of these details, we want to see what they tell us about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So Mark 15, beginning in verse 21. Um, And as I read, just note all the details that Mark draws into this. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, 
but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you love us. In your love for us, you gave your one and only Son, He suffered outside the gate to sanctify us through his blood. Father, we were dead and you made us alive. We were lost and you brought us home. While we were your enemies, you reconciled us by the death of your son. And now there is waiting for us a crown of righteousness that Jesus Christ himself will award to us when he comes again in glory. So, Father, open our eyes now to see in your word the crucifixion of your Son. We ask this in his name. Amen. Jesus dies deserted, alone, beaten, betrayed, mocked. Mark's account is particularly bleak. Mark doesn't tell us, for example, about the thief who does believe. Uh, Jesus doesn't pray from the cross, Father, forgive them, or Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, like he does in Luke's gospel. Nor does he pray, it is finished, like he does in John. In our passage, Jesus, who's been driving the action throughout Mark's gospel, he's gone passive. The miracles cease. His speech becomes silence, and his work becomes suffering. In verse 24, the actual crucifixion, Jesus practically disappears. The soldiers, they crucify, they divide, they cast lots, they decide, they take. Jesus is merely the object of one-fifth of the soldiers' activity. We see Jesus engulfed by evil. All along through Mark's gospel, we've noticed just how quickly Mark moves, right? Across the years of Jesus' ministry. And immediately Jesus did this, and immediately Jesus did that, and immediately something else happens. But now, time slows down for Mark. In Mark 14 and 15, Mark starts counting day by day. And then with our passage, Mark starts counting hour by hour. The history of the world turns on these few moments. Verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, to carry his cross. See, Jesus is too weak to continue. Remember, he'd prayed all night long, intensely, no sleep. Then there was the arrest, two different trials, the beating, and then Jesus was scourged. 
And often enough, scourging by itself will kill a man. And now he's staggering along with a hundred-pound crossbeam on his back. So Jesus is about to collapse right there on the road. Now, it's not that the soldiers felt pity for Jesus. Roman soldiers don't deal in pity. When they conscript Simon, right, they're not trying to make sure Jesus is comfortable. They don't want him to die on the way before he really suffers. And note that these soldiers, they had to force a total stranger to help. Why? Because there wasn't a single friend of Jesus anywhere to be found. But here's this guy, Simon, who's coming in from the country. Simon of Cyrene. There was a Jewish community in Cyrene. That's where Simon is from. He's probably in town to celebrate the Passover. It is fascinating how Mark tells this story. So Simon is going in the opposite direction of Jesus. Right? Jesus is being led out of the city. Simon is heading into the city. And Simon runs into Jesus. And though he's forced to do so by the soldiers, still Simon turns around, takes up the cross, and follows Jesus. It's a suggestive pattern, don't you think? Right? In chapter 8, Jesus had said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross, and follow me. And that's exactly what Simon does. But then Mark never mentions Simon again. I mean, you wonder what happened to this guy. Like, what a privilege, right? The disciples had all fled, and this is the guy who's chosen to help Jesus carry the cross. Talk about bragging rights. (laughs) But even if Mark's audience had forgotten who Simon of Cyrene was, they knew his sons. So Mark explains, you know, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, oh yeah, right? So Mark is probably writing to Rome, and Alexander and Rufus are well known to the churches there. And we may hear a little bit more about one of these sons elsewhere in the New Testament. So not long before Mark wrote, Paul also wrote to the churches in Rome. And in chapter 16, he says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And also his mother, who's been a mother to me as well. So what does this tell us? Well, Simon, who was on his way to celebrate the Passover, met the Passover lamb in person. His whole direction in life got turned around. He eventually became a believer in Jesus. And he led his spouse and his children to Jesus as well. And then 25 years later... His family were leaders in the churches in Rome. It's astounding. Now, let's not forget that when this meeting with Jesus actually happened, Simon thought it was a total disaster. Right? Simon had plans. He was on vacation. He was on pilgrimage. He was heading into Jerusalem. He was on his way to worship, and his day got wrecked. He's just passing by. That is, he's just minding his own business. The soldiers randomly grab him, treat him like a criminal, assign him a little slave labor, and then force him to join an execution party. So as Simon's helping carry the cross, he's probably far nearer to cursing Jesus than to worshiping him. Like, how could his day get worse? And that is how Jesus saved Simon. Friends, if that's what Jesus can do in weakness, think of what he can do in power. Right? If on the brink of death, 
Jesus can raise up a dynasty of leaders for his church. Think of what he can do seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus was abandoned by every last one of his disciples, but even in weakness he can raise up new ones and restore the old. The fluctuating fortunes of Christianity in America or of Christianity anywhere else in the world? Friends, our hope is not in our cultural influence. Our hope is in Jesus. Now, the decline or the persecution of the church is certainly occasion to grieve and to pray, but not to despair. The Son of God once brought the universe into being out of nothing. Do you think he's capable of reviving his church? Of course he is. Right? In a world of uncertainties, this much is sure. Jesus Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Amen? Amen. And then like Simon of Cyrene, how many of us met the Lord in just the wildest of circumstances? Or how many of us, rather, are family of those whom the Lord saved in just the wildest circumstances? Or maybe you're not a Christian. Right? Maybe right now you're kind of like Simon of Cyrene as he's heading into town. Right? Life was going along just fine, but suddenly you've hit a crisis, and now everything is falling apart. Maybe that's why you're sitting in church here this morning. Well, if so, praise be to God that you're here. You are in the right place to meet Jesus. We want you to know that this man, Jesus, who was executed as a criminal, is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And he loves to take a crisis and turn it into salvation. So we invite you to do like Jesus did. That is, turn your life in the other direction. Come to Jesus and follow him. In Simon of Cyrene, Mark shows us indirectly the power of the cross to save sinners. Mark tells us more about the cross indirectly again when he mentions Golgotha and the wine that Jesus refused, verses 22 and 23. Lots we don't know about Golgotha. Was this place called a skull because of the beheadings that took place there? Or did the profile of the hill look like a skull? And where exactly outside Jerusalem is this place? All kind of hard to say. At the very least, though, skulls, corpses, were ritually unclean. So Jesus will die not only alone, but in a place that is disgusting with filth and defilement. Golgotha, a place of punishment, foul with the stench of death, pierced with the sounds of misery and cursing, outside the city, unclean, God-forsaken. What does this sound like? Mordor. <laughs> uh, well, yes, and of what, of what is Mordor a picture? Right? What is Golgotha if not hell on earth? Mark is showing us, you see, the meaning of the cross. Mark is building a theology of the crucifixion, but he's doing this indirectly by showing us where it happens. Like Golgotha isn't just a nasty place. It's also a hint of the horror of sin and of the terrifying punishment that our sin deserves. Golgotha is a picture of eternal damnation. Jesus descends into it 
in order to lift us out. How far into it does Jesus descend? That's actually where the wine comes in. They offered him wine, but he did not take it. There's a verse in Proverbs. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. But Jesus refuses the sedative. Why? Wine might have helped him forget his misery. It would have taken the edge off the pain. Why refuse it? Because Jesus chooses to suffer to the full, with full clarity, full lucidity, no alleviation of the horror. You see, Jesus' suffering will not be in any way partial, but complete. The atonement he makes will be perfect. There are no lengths to which Jesus does not go in order to save. There's no aspect of our punishment that he does not willingly accept in our place to set us free. So friends, if by the grace of God you grieve over your sins, if by the grace of God you have a sense of the wages your sins have earned, know this, Jesus paid it all. There are no depths of hell to which Jesus does not descend. Mark shows us in the details of the crucifixion the full extremity of Jesus' suffering. It could not have been worse for Jesus, and it could not have been better for us. You see, Jesus suffers completely so that he may save completely. Our sins were laid on him completely, and we bear them no more. And because Jesus chooses to suffer to the full, he has full sympathy with our suffering, right? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, when we suffer, we we wish we could forget our misery, but there's no one standing there to offer us a bottle of wine, not usually at any rate. We could start a wine ministry and call it misery no more. (laughs) Alas, mostly we suffer sober. And so if Jesus is going to taste death for everyone and in the unalleviated way that countless others suffer, he can't get off easy. He can't be on meds. Jesus deliberately refuses the wine so that he can drink something else, the cup of the wrath of God to its very last drops. Jesus has full sympathy with our suffering. And what is sympathy? Well, if you've had a really hard season in life, right? if you've been through major suffering and you've made it through to the other side, so if you've faced a health crisis or financial disaster, we're all kind of going through the loss of Jack Mitchell, right? the death of a loved one. If you've known loss or loneliness or addiction and the Lord's brought you through it, tell me, how do you feel when you hear about somebody else going through the same thing? Right? All your compassion just wells up within you. You want to go find that person and pray with them and encourage them, cheer them on. That's how Jesus feels about our suffering. He sympathizes with us. He's been there. He wants to walk through our suffering with us. Jesus wants to show us how our suffering can make us depend on the Father like his did. 
He wants to show us how our suffering can bring glory to the Father, like His did. But also like His suffering, our suffering will probably require patient endurance. Right? We should expect not a quick and easy solution, but a long journey through the valley of the shadow of death. But take heart, friends. He will never leave us or forsake us. This brings us to the event itself, verse 24. And they crucified him. Crucifixion is as bad as it gets. Deuteronomy, anyone who is hung on a tree, crucified, is under God's curse. You must not desecrate the land the Lord your God is giving you. So crucifixion is both curse and desecration. It's condemnation and pollution. What death is more shameful? Philippians 2, Jesus became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, because it doesn't get worse than a cross. Crucifixion was so degrading that it was illegal to execute a Roman citizen in this way. You see, crucifixion is not meant simply to kill. I mean, you can chop off a head to do that. Crucifixion is designed publicly to dehumanize a man and then slowly torture him to death. Here, Jesus' body is being broken. Here, Jesus' blood is being poured out for many. Here, Jesus is bearing God's curse for us so that we never will. The garments that once healed those who even touched them and that shone radiant white in the transfiguration, they're now divvied up amongst the executioners. They're a tip for the hangmen. And the soldiers are casting lots, enjoying a little game, oblivious to the suffering Jesus, who's now exposed to the shame of nakedness as well. It's a scene of total failure. Or so it would seem. What you see in the cross depends on how you look at it. Mark begins immediately transforming this scene of failure. So on the surface, sure, it's failure, but behind it, something else is going on. And Mark gives us the kind of behind-the-scenes look at the cross by immediately connecting it to Psalm 22. So beginning in verse 24, and actually extending, in fact, all the way to the end of Mark's gospel, Mark begins this long dialogue with Psalm 22. Y'all should read Psalm 22 this week or next. It's like the answer key to the rest of Mark's gospel. I'm serious. It's good stuff. So Psalm 22 says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Mark 15 says, They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. So Mark uses Psalm 22 to show that the apparent disaster of the crucifixion actually fulfills lots of specific prophecies. The crucifixion has been in the plans all along. Now, for the disciples, the crucifixion sure comes as a nasty surprise, but not for Jesus. Like, all along, he's been talking about having to fulfill the scriptures, and Psalm 22 is one of those. But Mark does something else with Psalm 22 that's just wild. You see, Psalm 22 will go on to speak of the kingship of the Lord. And so Mark, by alluding to Psalm 22 here, and then by drawing our attention to the inscription and to the two robbers in the next verses, he paints for us an astounding double-vision portrait of the crucifixion as enthronement. 
In Mark's subtle lighting, the cross appears as a throne, right? Our sermon series on Mark entitled The King and the Cross. Okay, but this obviously depends on how you look at it. Uh, Pilate obviously sees none of this in the crucifixion. Verse 26, right? He has Jesus labeled King of the Jews in order to mock the Jewish leaders, right? The irony is (laughs) Pilate spoke truth by mistake, right? The Gentile governor insults the Jewish leaders with a true confession of Jesus' identity. Jesus is the king of the Jews, right? He is the son of David who will soon be seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The inscription, in other words, declares Jesus a king and by extension, his cross as a throne. And in this, Mark is just extending what he did in last week's passage. Last week, we saw Jesus clothed in royal purple, Right? And crowned with thorns and then hailed as a king. And now in verse 27, Jesus is crucified with a robber and outlaw, one on his right and one on his left. And this also is royal imagery. That is a king flanked by attendants on either side, the royal retinue. Remember James and John had said to Jesus, Hey, you think one of us could sit at your right hand and one at your left in your glory? That is, when you reign as king and when you're seated with princes on either side of you, right? For Mark, the cross doubles as a throne. But Gentile and Jew alike, Pilate and the priests, they are blind to Jesus' royal identity, right? All they see is a blasphemer, a criminal, right? An an unfortunate do-gooder caught between conflicting political interests, They don't see the whole picture. Do we? Right? Mark is using this sort of double vision portrait of the cross to check our spiritual eyesight. Will we see just a crucified failure? Or will we see a crucified king and son of God? You see, the two look so much alike that sometimes it's hard to tell the difference. And so Mark will continue with three snapshots of deepening blindness when it comes to seeing Jesus. The mockers are tragically wrong about Jesus, but Mark uses them as an invitation for us to see Jesus aright. So snapshot number one, verse 29. Those who are passing by, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So they mocked Jesus for saying he was going to destroy the temple. And now he's obviously going to die before that ever happens. Obviously. But note the blindness. Note the irony in Mark's account. What is Jesus doing at that very moment but destroying the temple? He's not pulling down its walls, right? But his death and resurrection will make the temple obsolete, right? When Jesus completes his earthly ministry... Worship would no longer be centered in Jerusalem and in its temple, right? The temple where God met with his people was always a foreshadowing of Jesus. And now that Jesus is here and his work almost complete, the entire era of the temple is ending, right? This is astounding. A new era in the history of salvation is dawning with the death of Jesus. And so the irony of this passage just shouts to, you, to us, like, don't you see what's going on here? That truly this man, Jesus, is the Son of God. Now, certainly the crucifixion is destroying the temple of his body. But against all expectation, he will rebuild that in three days. 
Snapshot number two, verse 31. The chief priests and the scribes. He saved others. Stop there. (laughs) Jesus did save others. This is a frank acknowledgement from the bad guys, right? The man with the withered hand, Jesus saved. The disciples in the storm, Jesus saved. Jairus' daughter, Jesus saved. They're at least giving him credit for that. But, they continue, he cannot save himself. Now, the further irony, what the chief priests and the scribes do not see, and what Mark is inviting us to realize, is that if Jesus saved himself, he couldn't save others. Right? If Jesus had just played the God card and hopped right down from the cross, right? if he had saved himself, he would not have borne our sins. If Jesus doesn't die forsaken in our place, then we still face a God-forsaken death. When it comes to the punishment our sins deserve, friends, it's either Jesus or us. In order to save others, he cannot save himself. Right? Remember, in Gethsemane, he had prayed, Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me. But no, it's not possible. Father, is there any other possible way to save? No, there isn't. You see, our salvation requires Jesus' crucifixion. And if the crucifixion of Jesus is the only way to be saved, well, then guess what? We can't save ourselves. Like Self-salvation is simply not an option. Friends, our sins are too strong for us. We can't handle them. We are Judas who betrays, the disciples who flee, the crowd who chants crucify him. You think we can make up for that? Right? We are Peter who denies him, the robbers who revile him. Do you think we're in any position to set ourselves right with God? Right? We can't convert ourselves. We can't make ourselves children of God instead of his enemies. Note, Barabbas did not get himself out of prison. We cannot shield ourselves from the destruction our sin deserves. From the wrath of God, we cannot save ourselves. Now, we believe this not just because we take a pessimistic view of human capacity, weak though we are. Nor is it just an exaggerated view of sin's power, strong though it is. No, what ultimately is going on here in our recognition that we can't save ourselves is that we realize it took nothing less than God himself. Right? It took nothing less than God himself in the person of his son to bear the penalty for sin. And where the intervention of God himself is necessary, all other measures are futile. Right? Only Jesus could restore us from corruption. Only Jesus could save. Only Jesus, by his death and by his resurrection, could make us God's friends and God's sons and daughters. Friends, in an increasingly pluralistic culture, we have to see that there is no other reconciliation of man to God than this one. There's nothing else. Right? The crucifixion of the Son of God. This is what it took to secure our salvation. Nothing less. And this is what the Father gave out of love for us. He gave His one and only Son. Though we could do nothing to save ourselves, God intervened. Jesus saves. This is the good news of Good Friday. So it's true, we cannot save ourselves, but praise God, we don't have to. And then finally, snapshot number three, verse 32. 
Our passage ends in supreme blindness, but in Mark's hands, this becomes yet another invitation for us to see. Come down from the cross that we may see and believe. So the priests and the scribes, they're not totally unaware of what's happening. They do know what the issue is. Will they believe that Jesus is the Son of God or will they not? Now, clearly, they will not. Right? And they use their own settled rejection to taunt Jesus. Hey, Jesus, do one of those neat little tricks of yours so that we can see and believe. Now, as readers of Mark's gospel, we know that this is not a promising strategy. Right? Earlier, the Pharisees had watched Jesus to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Right? They did see the healing, but they did not believe. They started planning to kill him. The Jerusalem scribes did see Jesus cast out demons, but they did not believe, right? They said Jesus was allied with the prince of demons. You see, in Mark's gospel, first you believe, and then you see, right? That's how the sequence works in Mark. For one who believes, that's first, all things are possible. Your faith, that's first, has made you well. So in our passage, the priests and the scribes do not believe, and therefore they cannot see that Jesus really is their king. But then as readers of Mark's gospel, Mark is inviting us to see Jesus, the king of the Jews, and to fall down and worship him. All along, Mark has been telling us the secret of the kingdom of God so that we might believe and then see. So Mark is inviting us to see Jesus aright, his cross a throne, his punishment our forgiveness, his forsakenness our adoption, and his death a triumph. And so it is that, as with the whole of Mark's account of the crucifixion, Mark invites us to see double. That is, even as he's telling us of the horrors and the isolation and the degradation of the crucifixion, he's doing so in ways that point ahead to the resurrection of the Son of God. So Mark's account is filled with details of anticipation. And what this means for us is that we cannot see the cross. We can't even read these 12 verses about it in our Bibles without thinking also of the empty tomb. In other words, these verses are not merely a record of historical events. They are a summons to faith. And it's not just that Mark's account of the crucifixion anticipates the resurrection. right? Jesus himself, as he was being crucified, was anticipating the resurrection. Right? Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. So as Jesus is dying, he's looking ahead to a glorious redemption. And so as we see Jesus dying, we must also see double at the same time the redemption that his death accomplishes. So even as we proclaim a crucified Messiah, we must also proclaim he is not here. He is risen. And truly, this man Jesus is the Son of God. Amen. Let's take uh, a few minutes here, maybe five minutes or so, to just pray and reflect on these words, on this passage on the crucifixion. And then I'll close us in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you because you did not despise the suffering of your afflicted son. Father, you accepted his suffering in our place. You canceled the record of debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. Father, you made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.
So, Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see the glory of your crucified Son. Enable us to rest in his salvation, to strive for his kingdom, to yearn for his return. We ask this in his powerful name. Amen.